What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I was being called to go to a higher place. That's what it felt like. I'm being called to be more of a leader than I was, a more conscious leader than I was. And if I was willing to make that commitment, I could stay and do Whole Foods. But if I wasn't willing to make those leadership changes, then I was going to have to step aside. You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Legorio Chapkin. Today's episode The Delicate Balance of Purpose and Profit. If you're an avid reader of business news, you're used to being spoken to in absolutes. Here's the one key to success. Here's the secret path to life balance. It's the stuff of TED Talks, and it's also very tempting to view solutions to big challenges in this way, a simple right or wrong. But what if your whole outlook doesn't fit that narrative? Today's guest is John Mackey, founder and CEO of Whole Foods Market. He's a fascinating founder full of contradictions. 40 years ago, he created a little crunchy health food shop that's grown into a bright, clean, mainstream store, which is today so associated with affluent urban liberalism. But Mackey himself is far from lefty in his politics. As an executive, he's into service leadership and building a healthy company culture. He loves nothing more than visiting stores and having one-on-one conversations with employees. But he's also notoriously anti-union and also sold his whole operation to Amazon, America's e-commerce overlord. His whole leadership philosophy, which he divulges in his new book, Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business, is about using your ideals to scale thoughtful, good business. But at times, in building his own business, he had to compromise the very ideals he says all businesses should be built on. John and I dug into many of his apparent contradictions. But before we talked about compromising ideals, his unique theories of leadership, and the state of commerce today, I asked him how he got his start on his whole path by opening a scrappy health food market called Safer Way in Texas. His passion for healthy eating actually started a few years before the grand opening of that little store when he was in his early 20s. I moved into this vegetarian co-op to live. And uh, I wasn't a vegetarian at that time. I just moved back, moved into that co-op, honestly, because I just thought I'd meet really interesting people. I was interested in sort of all things counterculture back then. And uh, I moved into that co-op and I had sort of a food awakening. I, I... I didn't know anything about food, really. And I became a vegetarian. I learned how to cook. I became the food buyer for the co-op. And I had not, didn't realize it at the time, but I'd really found the purpose of my life. And I went soon after that, while I was living there, I went to work for a small natural food store, became the assistant store manager fairly quickly. And I remember coming back to the co-op one evening and I had this idea during the day, and I, I asked my girlfriend that was in the co-op, I said, Renee, 
what if we opened up our own store? And she just thought that was the coolest idea ever. And I was, that time I was 24 and Renee would have been 20. So we were very young, wow, very, very idealistic. And we opened up a pretty small store. It was this old, in an old house. And on the first floor, there was a, a, a vegetarian store. And then there was a vegetarian cafe on the second floor. And on the third floor, we had a small office. And Renee and I lived in the office at night. So we literally lived above the store. And we did that for about two years. Learned a lot about business because I didn't have any business background. And after two years, we decided to relocate to a bigger, bigger location. And we merged with another small natural food store that we were sort of friends with, but was also a competitor. And we changed the name. They didn't want to be called Saferway, and we didn't want to be called Clarksville Natural Grocery. So we changed the name to Whole Foods, Whole Foods Market, and opened up the first store. And, and, and it just took off. So, so before that point, I, I believe you funded the operation with like money from the family, and then it kind of suffered financially. I'm curious, like the in the precursor to Whole Foods, what did you learn through those two years? So. We funded the business with $45,000 from friends and family. Like my original investment was $10,000. And I don't think I had $10 to my name. So I borrowed that from my family. And Renee borrowed, I think, $2,500 from her family. And the rest came from friends and, and my parents also invested. So we lost half of that money, $23,000 in the first year. And then we started to figure out the business. We made a small profit in year two. And then we began to realize, wow, Saferway is at a competitive disadvantage. We're smaller. We don't have a great location. And we need we need to get a better store location, bigger and better. And we, we kind of lucked out finding our first location because we didn't have much sophistication in terms of real estate, not like Whole Food Test today. And, and we just found a location was about half a mile away from safer way that was on a busy strip strip location and and uh when we relocated to the the larger location we opened up before we really ready to open because we just um we didn't have any more money we couldn't meet the payroll so we had to start selling some groceries to give us some cash flow and and the funny thing is that we opened that store without a meat department no seafood we weren't going to be vegetarian. This was one of the changes that we were going to make to be more of a real grocery store. And I remember we got a truck load of gallons of apple juice and we, because we didn't, we just didn't have enough inventory. So we just kind of filled the shelves with a lot of apple juice to make it so it didn't look empty. But people asked me how long it took that first store to be profitable. It took about till two o'clock in the afternoon on the first day. It, it quickly became the highest volume natural food store in the United States. We yeah, had, I read that took six months only to become the highest volume natural food store. Yeah, we hit a home run. Kind of lucky, but you know, timing is very important in life, and we opened the right kind of store in the right marketplace at the right time. That's fascinating. So how much of this success was, I mean, to put it most extremely, kind of compromising some of the original ideas you had with the first small store, you know, selling meat, selling sugar, selling alcohol, adding those things or the healthy versions of those things to your concept and kind of expanding to be more like a, a grocery store that people would recognize? That's a very good question. And and uh, again, Safer Way 
was very idealistic. It was very pure. We didn't sell alcohol. We didn't sell sugar. We didn't sell uh, meat or seafood. And and uh, we didn't even sell caffeine. I mean, wow. we were very, yeah, exactly. We also just didn't do very much business. We just because we just didn't appeal to enough people. And we realized if we're going to be successful, we have to meet the marketplace where we find it. And if you were interested in absent organic foods, we wanted Whole Foods could be one-stop shopping for those type of customers. And once we did that, it just took off. We still had organic, still had natural, but we added coffee, beer and wine, some sugar and meat and seafood and chicken. And, it, and, it, and that concept really, really worked. We hit the sweet spot in the market. That's great. What, why I ask is because I'm curious what your mindset was going into that change and, and how that has influenced you over the years. What I learned from that is that it's good to have a, your higher purpose and your ideology. It's very important. And yet you, you, have to, you have to meet the marketplace. Business is about satisfying customers. And so you have to find – now, we always thought of ourselves as a niche. We weren't trying to appeal to everybody. We, so I think Whole Foods kept its high ideals. It's, it's, it's always had the highest ideals of any large supermarket company in the United States. But you have to meet the marketplace where you find it. And you couldn't open a large vegetarian store that didn't sell coffee or beer and wine. It just wouldn't, it wasn't, it, it's particularly in Texas back in 1980, it just wasn't going to work. So that's the big lesson I learned is that you have to meet the marketplace where you find it. You have to satisfy customers. Ultimately, businesses in you're in business to satisfy customers. And if you can't do that, you're going to fail. So you can be idealistic and fail, or you can be more pragmatic and succeed while continuing to fulfill your ideals as best you can. Let's talk a little bit about leadership, which is the subject of your new book. Over the years, Whole Foods just blossomed and grew and grew into what you said is a far bigger company than you could have imagined. How did you get your leadership legs and how did you become the leader that you are today? I'm still getting my leadership legs. I mean, the last chapter in our book is continuously learn and grow. And I feel like I'm a better leader today than I was five years ago. And five years ago, I was a better leader than I was 10 years before that. So it's continuing to learn and grow. And there's many ways we do that. I mean, we, we have a ch chapter we dedicate that to in the book. But the way I've learned is first by reading. I've read so widely. I've read hundreds, hundreds of business books, but and not just business books. I mean, psychology, philosophy spirituality it's it's about continuing to expand my mind expand my knowledge challenging myself to to learn more be a better leader and then secondly school of hard knocks i mean i've made a lot of mistakes and i've learned that your mistakes are your are your best teacher and whole foods over 40 years 42 years counting safer way we've had so many different crises over the years you can learn so much. I mean, this is a great learning opportunity, right? 2020 is the weirdest year of my life and probably yours too. So you meet these challenges, you make mistakes, you learn and you get better. So it's continually improving, continually getting better. And, and I've just become a wiser person than I used to be. I'm just a better leader than I used to be. I'm more confident. I've slowly learned to be more diplomatic because I'm pretty 
um, outspoken, which has occasionally gotten me into trouble over the years. And now I'm just a little more measured. I've been, the PR team has finally tamed me. Um, <laughs> I've learned a lot from being married, to be honest. I, I, I think you learn more in relationships in life than any other, any other time. And I, I'm very fortunate to have married well with a very wise woman who's taken me on as her most important project since I had so much I needed to learn. And, you know, over 30 years, you know, she's, she's civilized me, I suppose. So <laughs> the importance of relationship and also finally good friends. Friends are people that will tell you when you're, when you're in your ego, when you're making mistakes, when you are not acting as a leader, not acting as a servant leader to others, that you're on some kind of ego trip. You need people to tell you that. Entrepreneurs, particularly entrepreneurs that get a little bit successful, their narcissism can get out of check and they begin, you know, thinking they're some kind of genius. You forget that you're just another person and you're ultimately, every person has dignity. You're not better than other people. And, and uh, success can be, uh, can be poisonous. I, I've just, I've been very successful, but I've also, I've failed many times. And so I don't, I don't have any illusions. And also I'm partly successful because I've had such a great team. I mean, I'm if you hire really good people, and they work with you and they share your vision and your values and your passion, you almost can't help but succeed because the team is, can be so potent. And we, we make a big deal out of that in the book as well. Constantly evolve the team. That's great. Yeah, I want to talk to you more about 2020, more about outspokenness. But first, you were you were just addressing how crisis can make you a stronger leader, um, kind of weathering that. I love that in the introduction to your new book, you write about the year 2001, uh, that you were facing an executive and board coup. They had sort of decided it was time to replace you. What led to that? And how on earth did you cope with it? I mean, that internally and saving your, your role within the company. You know, that was, uh, that was all that came about because back in 1999, Whole Foods, well, first we acquired a, a vitamin company, a mail order company called Amrion based out of Boulder, Colorado. And then we started up WholeFoods.com and, and the whole internet thing was taking off and so in 1999, my wife and I moved to Boulder. This was in the dot-com boom, the first dot-com boom. And so we created a dot-com company called wholepeople.com. And it sold, it sold, whole, it sold natural foods, whole foods, it sold supplements from the vitamin company. It sold trips and, and uh, uh, we were like trying to be Amazon in a way before Amazon, when Amazon was just selling books back then. And we were, we were looking at a, a broader uh, portfolio of businesses, but the timing wasn't great. And we didn't, and because it was a secondary business, uh, we had the dot-com bust, you know, the pets.coms of the world all went out of business. And so whole people, we just didn't have very many sales and, and our stock market, we were a public company at Whole Foods and our stock price was getting hammered because they, they saw this not as a omni-channel, they just saw it as a huge distraction and we were under pressure from the board to do something about this business. So we, we ended up closing that business down and uh, selling it off to Gaim, which was a lifestyle company. And then Deborah and I, my wife and I moved back to Austin back in 
the end of two, year 2000. And unfortunately, there was a plot essentially to throw me out. One of my senior executives was conspiring with a couple of directors to, to take me out. And uh, I found out about it. Fortunately for me, I was able to win that power struggle. And as a result, I got to stay. And I learned a huge amount of lessons from that. One lesson I learned was how important boards of directors are, that, that ultimately, the, even if I created the company, even if I helped hire the directors, by law, I reported to them as the representatives of the shareholders. So from that time on onward, I really paid a lot of attention to the board. I cultivated the board and realized the board was extremely important and they had the power and the authority and the obligation, the fiduciary responsibility to make sure, I mean, that's one of the most important jobs is to, is to hire and fire the CEO. So I, from that point onward, after this coup was put down, the, the other directors resigned. The executive that was conspiring uh, also resigned. And I, I changed as a leader. That was, that was why we started the book with it. I became a much more conscious leader more conscious towards the importance of the board, more conscious to making sure that I was well aligned with my team and that, and that everybody that I was working with uh, supported my leadership and that I trusted them and they trusted me. Yeah. And we reorganized some of the senior leadership and Whole Foods at that point was about a billion dollar a year company. Today we're just almost 20 billion in sales. So we're almost 20 times larger than we were back then. So mostly with the leadership that uh, we put in place there. Some of those people have retired now, but in general, the culture and the values that we put back in 20 years ago is still with us today at Whole Foods and is largely responsible for our success. Yeah, that's great. Obviously, the the organization structure worked, but in terms of your own wake-up call and your own awakening, what did that look and feel like to you? And, and what did it actually sort of amount to in terms of a personal awakening? So... When this whole thing happened, I was first, I was in shock. You know, you go through the different stages of, you know, there was denial. This couldn't be happening. I mean, I, I trust him. How could he be doing this? And I'd worked with him for 16 years and thought he was one of my closest friends. Could that possibly be possible? And once I verified it was true, and then I found out there were a couple of directors involved, um, I finally like, okay, I'm going to have to fight for my job here. So... Um, but I did at that time, I did a lot of, I did a lot of inner work. Um, I know that I did, uh, I did a lot. I increased my meditation practice. I did something called holotropic breath work, which is a deep inner process, usually guided that allowed me to experience a deeper part of my being and deeper part of my purpose and values and what it was all about. I got more clear on that through that, through that work. The people that I trust the most in the world, my, my, my wife and my, my, my close friends, as well as some of the other senior executives, we, we talk things through. They helped me see where some of my leadership weaknesses were that needed to change to make me a better leader going forward. I stepped into being a more confident leader. I, I had, in some ways, one of my weaknesses was I'm, I'm a little more introverted, so I was happy to have other people be more, ex the more extroverted people to be more out in front. And I realized that I needed to take more of a in front leadership at Whole Foods if I wanted to stay in charge. And I kind of was asked when I was doing a lot of the spiritual work and internal work, 
I've sort of got really clear. It's like, okay, I was being called to go to a higher place. That's what it felt like. I'm being called to be more of a leader than I was, a more conscious leader than I was. And if I was willing to make that commitment, I could stay and do Whole Foods. But if I wasn't willing to make those leadership changes, then I was going to have to step aside. And since Whole Foods was really aligned with who I was and my higher purpose, I made that commitment. And many friends within the next year or so would ask me, like, you seem to be a different person than you were a couple of years ago. What happened? And I would recount what happened. And so I, I really do feel like I made a significant change. That's really when I became a more conscious leader. It really, it really dates back to about 20 years ago when I had this really near-death experience as the CEO of Whole Foods. That's what I think of it now as a near-death experience. When we come back, I'll talk to John about company culture and the importance of changing the language we use at work. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Can you walk me through some more of the new language companies can adopt? These ideas of gratitude, generosity, appreciation, compassion. I, you know, it's, it's funny, even in saying them aloud, it's remarkable how much these terms are not associated with the boardroom in general. The, the, the metaphors that we use in life and in business, they structure the way we think, they structure the way we act, they structure our business strategies. And the dominant metaphors in business today are, there's still war metaphors that we're trying to crush the enemy. There are these hyper-competitive war metaphors of, uh, you know, we got war rooms and we're, we think about um, uh, invasion, invading market territories and, and crushing the enemy. And it's, 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 it's a war, me war metaphors or they're sports metaphors of winning and losing. We're winners. We're going to beat them. There can only, you know, there can only be one winner uh, and everybody else is a loser. And there's sort of an obsession with, with that in a win lose type of worldview, which is, actually contrary to the way business really works, where it's really a win-win-win uh, business is creating value for multiple stakeholders. So it's really the wrong metaphor. And then you have Darwinian metaphors, survival of the fittest, uh, only the paranoid survive, this sort of, uh, we are in this, we're in a jungle and, and it's, it's every, we're going to be, we're going to die out, we're going to go extinct unless we do this. So, so many of these business metaphors are hyper-competitive metaphors. And while competition is real in business, it's clearly real, it's not the most important thing. And if we obsess with it, then the most important values in life, such as love and trust, kindness, compassion, care, generosity, those, those don't have any place. When you're at war, you've got to kind of check love. That's something you do maybe with your home, with your family, your friends, but check it at the door when you come in the corporation because we've got serious business here we're going to win we're going to kill the enemies and uh, so love is very much in the corporate closet 
in most organizations. And that's too bad because love is actually the most important virtue that we can have. It's love that's the glue that holds a culture and organization together. And in fact, it's one of the reasons corporations are not trusted more and loved and, more, and loved more is because there's this absence of care and love in the corporation itself. I don't think we can go on keeping love locked up in the closet. I think if we're going to keep capitalism moving forward, if we're going to continue to have corporations uh, evolve, then love has to be released and has to be released. And I look around at how messed up our country is right now in the world. And, you know, we're not exactly drowning in love. There's a lot of hate out there. That's what I'm seeing. We, we, the only way to counteract that is to release love. You've spoken about the social negative perception of business. Um, how do you think the current tech ecosystem and Silicon Valley contributes to that? Um, you've always been very pro-business as a source, source of societal good. Um, has anything changed your mind about that lately, or are you still optimistic? No, I'm still very optimistic. I mean, I always say that capitalism and business, they're inherently good because they're creating value for other people. It's it's voluntary. However, it could be done better. It could be done more consciously. And because we have this win-lose philosophy in life, business, but also people outside of business think the same way, we're constantly thinking if someone's getting rich, somebody else is getting poor, or somebody else is getting a bigger piece of the pie than they should. The technology companies are getting too powerful. There's, it's important to realize that business is never – it's. It's always been disliked throughout all history by intellectuals. There have been always the class enemy, so to speak, of business. And that hasn't changed. If you study your history, you will see that the, the clerisy, the intellectuals and the aristocrats have always disliked commerce and always tried to keep it regulated and bottled up. And I think that's happening again today. And sometimes business plays into the hands of its, of its enemies by not being more consciously awake and caring and being socially responsible, taking care of their employees, doing the right thing by their customers. Uh, so I just think it's very important in this hyper-polarized world that business lead with love, always act with integrity, and seek win-win-win solutions. That if business does that, then it's going to continue to be able to create value in the world. And if it forgets that, there's a very good chance that it's going to be regulated into straitjackets and not be able to work its magic going forward. Right, right. Um, I mean, this is it's an interesting philosophy to have, especially now being part of Amazon, right? Um, are you still, do you still feel comfortable to openly criticize Amazon while being part of it um, over the past few years? I mean, I use a metaphor that a big merger like Amazon Whole Foods is a little bit like getting married. And uh, if, if you ask me about Am I happily married? The answer is I'm very happily married. I love almost everything about my wife, but do I love everything about my wife? No. And I'm sure she doesn't love everything about me, uh, but I love most things. And, and with a big merger like Amazon, do I love everything about Amazon? No, I don't. Do they love everything about Whole Foods? No, but I do love most things about Amazon. And I think they love most things about Whole Foods. And it's been a good marriage. It's been a good merger. If I had to make the same decision again three years later, would I make it? The answer is yes, I would. Uh, but I'm not going to criticize my wife in public. 
public. Right. <laughs> let's let's talk about this year in particular. I mean, once once March hit and the coronavirus, um, I'm sure the entire operation started to look entirely different. What has what have been the major changes that you made, and um, what do you think will be the lasting effects of the pandemic? I imagine that delivery and contactless shopping and and those sorts of trends are going to stay strong for years. But do you believe that also? Yeah, I mean, our product mix changed significantly. I mean, Whole Foods has been very fortunate because, you know, our sales have gone up in this pandemic. They haven't gone down. We haven't been put out of business like so many small business people have been put out of business by COVID. And that's just a tragedy. The trillions of dollars that have resulted from lockdown has destroyed so many entrepreneurs and so many businesses. It's the greatest tragedy, frankly, of my life. And it's happening right now as I, a lot of these businesses will never reopen. It's just, a, it's just a tragedy. It's so terrible, but whole foods has been one of the fortunate ones because we've seen our sales go up. It's been challenging our team members. Um, and they're having to wear masks and our customers wear masks and, and uh, our prepared foods really have fallen off our, our self-serve salad bars and hot bars. I mean, those are all shut down. So other than we spend a lot of money on cleaning to, to keep everything sterile from, from potential COVID infections. Um, it's, it's, it's probably been overall good for our business. And yes, online shopping, I mean, Amazon announced in their last quarter that online grocery sales have, have tripled in the last, uh, over the last year and we're most of the online grocery sales. So yeah, our sales have tripled in the last year, online sales have tripled. So that's probably a permanent change. I see the whole thing that's happened with COVID as an accelerant of online grocery shopping. However, I do believe that things will go back to, or largely go back to normal in another year or so is there's a, be a vaccine and her, her immunity, immunity is reached. And I mean, we're social beings. We're going to want to, we're going to want to go to restaurants and bars and we're going to want to eat out again and see our friends. And I, I think two or three years from now, it'll be pretty much like it was pre COVID, but there will be more online grocery shopping than there was prior to COVID. So I, I think that's the lasting change that, that will be there. And, um, but I just, I really do think things will be, will go back to pretty much how they were. We'll call it 90% how it was pre COVID two or three years from now, it'll be slow, but it's going to happen because humans are just, you know, human nature is what it is. So you're an optimist, uh, although I, I like that you're thinking in the ter- in terms of years. Um, but I mean, some of the stores, some of your hubs are sort of social places as well, right? People gather, people hold small events, um, and and that's going to be a whole different thing for a while. I mean, Whole Foods has always been a place that people like to go to and hang out and uh, see their friends, meet their friends. Um, it's always been a third place, a good place to go. That's not true right now. I mean, it's a, tr- it's, it's a place to go get your food. It's a transaction. You got a social distance. You got to wear your mask. When I shop, I get in and get out. I got a list. I get it. I get out. And I think that's true for most of the customers. That will change slowly. It, it'll, it'll take a little while. But yeah, I frankly, I'm looking forward to getting back to semi-normality in the next year or so as people stop being so afraid of COVID. 
Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any tips for other business owners in terms of how to communicate with your employees when you're asking something challenging of them? You're asking them, you know, be there in person, wear a mask, do something a little bit that's, that a lot of people consider dangerous, right? Um, work in a service profession right now. How do you communicate with people and keep them enthused about a job that's become a little scarier? It's a great question, and it is challenging. And uh, the way I think about it is, at least in Whole Foods' case, we had made so many deposits in social capital with our team members over so many years. We built up a culture of trust. We have put the safety of our team members at you know at the very top of our list. The safety of our customers. We 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 keep getting named the safest supermarkets in America to shop in. So it's been a high priority for us. And so, yeah, we've, we've asked a lot from our team members, but we've also, we've been generous as well. We've given, we've paid more, we've raised pay, we've given bonuses, we've, we allow unlimited call outs. Nobody has to work at Whole Foods if they don't want to, for any reason, they can just call out. They don't feel safe that day, but it's about trust and you have to have that high trust relationship with team members and you have to really care about them. And Whole Foods does have high trust. And we do care about our team members. We we always try to do right by them. And uh, if you if people know that you care about them, then they're going to understand that, and they're going to be much more likely to to reciprocate that. So it's how you show up. It's how you act. If you if you want to, if this is a difficult time for your business, then take care of your people. Do the right thing by your people. You've got to you've got to invest in them at all at all times, and particularly in crisis. If people feel like you, if they're expendable, you don't care about them. Well, they're not going to care about you either. They're not going to care about the organization. Whole Foods really, really cares. We love our team members, and and that's a big part of our culture. And we've tried to do right by them during this entire COVID crisis. Um, you know, earlier in this interview, you said the phrase, avoid the poison of success. I wanted to ask you um, to go into that a little bit more in depth. What does that mean? Um, I, I do know that you've taken the $1 salary, you've said, I've got enough money now, I just want to work for the passion of it. Um, how else, how can other people avoid the poison of success? Um, and, and what has that philosophy kind of done for you? Well, success is not poison necessarily. It all, it all depends on how you react to it. And uh, it's just, it's just always good to have your ego in check. And that's really what I'm talking about. Not letting your, your vanity, your, your pride, your ego, um, hypertrophy when, when, when times are good. Um, you always have to realize how fortunate you are. I suppose we talk about in the chapter on lead with love, we talk a lot about expressing gratitude and just being grateful for whatever you have. Here's the reality. We're all going to die. Nobody's getting out of here alive. We're all passing through here. No matter how rich you are, no matter how successful you are, it's all going to be left behind. And what really matters in life is relationships, love, friends, family. That's what's really important. And and people will forget that sometimes when they're becoming wealthy and when they get, when they get successful. And it's a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake because money success don't make you happy ultimately they can contribute to it but ultimately it's those relationships that make you happy when we're all about to end when, our, when we're on our deathbeds or we know we're about to pass we'll be thinking about we won't be regretting we didn't work harder we didn't make more money we'll be regretting what we didn't say to our parents or we didn't say to our children or we didn't express enough love to our friends and all the mistakes that we made that's what we'll remember because that's what's really most important in life 
And if we remember that as we go through business, as we go through our work and our challenges and our success, we have a good chance to be happy. And uh, if you just remember that relationships are what really matter in life and don't let your success get in the way of nurturing those relationships, then you'll manage success, money, and power pretty well. And if you forget it, you're going to lose your way for a while, and hopefully you'll wake back up again before it's too late. Thank you so much, John. This has been a really, really great time talking with you. Thanks. Stay safe and uh, hope we talk again. Take care. While speaking with John, I was, of course, wrapped by his stories of attempted management coups and Whole Foods' many almost tragic missteps over the years. What's so impressive is not just that he hung on, but that he turned every impossible moment into a genuine learning experience. He's an individual who clearly strives for personal growth at every turn. And now he's channeled that growth into lessons for scaling your own passion. I love that he says to be a conscious leader. You have to know your passion and strength. You have to express and embody the traits that you are trying to infuse into your organization. And you don't only have to walk the walk. You have to empower others to do so. If you're doing the right thing, it will trickle out to others. So give permission for other people to embrace your ideals. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. We'd love it if you could please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a friend interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, we'd love it if you could recommend us to them. Also, it's truly helpful if you could leave us some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes two seconds and helps other people who'd love this podcast find us. You can also drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatinc.com. Let us know about what entrepreneurial skill you want to hear about next on this show. You can also let me know on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer, a salad bar aficionado, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Ligorio-Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.